the most successful people, the, the, the largest firms, the ones that are like literally the 40, 50, 60, 70 million dollar firms, Roland, I kid you not, they're the ones who sit there and take the most notes. They ask the most questions. You want to know the, the you know, in quotes, the least successful, the smaller firms in that room? They're the ones that sit back. They're the ones that don't take notes. They're the ones that have answers you know, to all the questions. They've already read that book. They've already done that. And it's just interesting for me to see it from the other side. You're listening to Business Lunch with Roland Frazier. This is your seat at the table. Welcome to the show. This is Darren Clark, the producer, and we thank you for tuning in as always. Today, Roland talks with Michael Mogul. He's the founder and CEO of Crisp Video Group, as well as a sought-after speaker, author, and investor. Roland and Michael talk about what he believes are the keys to his success. And it's a great episode, so let's dive in. But not before I've asked you to make sure you hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. So thanks again, and let's get started. Hey everybody, Roland Frazier here with another episode of Business Lunch and I'm very happy today to have my guest, Michael Mogul from Crisp Video. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? You know, it's all things considered very well. It's interesting times when you're asked these questions, right? Because you say, great, phenomenal. People are like, really at a time like this? But I, you know, I would say that from the perspective of gratitude, there's so many things that, you know, when we look at the world where there's a lot going wrong, there's a lot of things also going right you yeah. know, in, in our organizations and our families and you know, our teams and so on. So I would say from that standpoint, things are great. I think that we should always have the permission from the rest of the world for it to be okay to be doing great, no matter how bad things are, right? It's not like, it's not like there's only this much greatness and when it runs out, like if I take more of the, of the doing great than other people have less, it's, it's, hey, let's make the best of every situation, which you obviously have done and, uh, and I want to talk about a little bit. Look, I, when I see someone who's doing really well or is succeeding in any period of, of, of time, in any period of history, to me, that's inspiring. I look yes. at it from the standpoint of like, wow, like even look at Tesla, for example, right? Uh, at a time like this, and you, you know, so many people were shorting Tesla and so on to see them succeeding. I think it's a wonderful thing. That's, that's good is. for everyone to see any business leaders succeed. I agree. And it's, you know, for much to the chagrin of those who are not happy about that, it helps the economy. It helps the people that work for those companies. It puts jobs together. I mean, it's, it, there's a lot of good that comes from that. So screw those people that don't want to see people doing well, I say. And I'm happy that you're doing well. <laughs> Thank you. That said, let's talk about what you're doing well at. Will you give kind of a, a little uh, who, who I am right now and what's going on? And then we'll kind of delve into the background of it all. Okay. Well, so I run a company called Crisp Video. And I guess the video at this point is it's a bit of a misnomer, but we are a law firm growth company. So we, we specialize and focus on working with law firms in the legal industry nationally, so all across the country. And we do everything from create content for them. So creating video content. For the web and, and you know even traditionally like TV and so on to actually marketing and placing that content to now working with them on a coaching capacity to where we're helping them with everything in terms of hiring you know culture processes systems those aspects of business development and you know it's interesting I imagine someone listening to this and was like why couldn't he just stay in his lane with the videos right he started in 2012 and I'm like I've been hearing this since 2012 even right. when we started the marketing they're like why didn't you just stick to the videos and we introduced the coaching and they're like you know, stay in your lane. There's, you know, it's as if the only people that can enter, uh, you know, almost like a vertical are ones that just go into that and not, not do it as an extension of something else. Right. So right. for us, it was always very natural. So we realized very early on, you create a great video, 
But if, if, the, if the client wasn't able to really place it or get eyes on it from their ideal clients, then it wasn't really as valuable to them. So we say, okay, well, let's become great marketers and let's help place this content. And then we realize, let's say you get really good at marketing and you drive tons of leads and the phone's ringing, but you don't know how to answer the phones, right? So there's, a, there's an intake problem. Or the people that you have in that organization are not aligned and the culture's a mess. Would that not also impact the return from the marketing? So for us, it was just a natural extension of one to the next. So wait a minute, you're telling me that you have the audacity to create something that satisfies a need and then you see additional needs and you satisfy those needs too? What the heck, man? It's a crazy <laughs> concept, right? That, that's, and that's always what it was. It, it, right. it, what's interesting about it is that we were never the first to any of this stuff. We were not the first company that was producing legal videos or doing legal marketing or even legal coaching. There's usually you know, a large array of, of companies that are already doing whatever, whatever that area of business is where I think the differentiator was that I didn't see someone that was either addressing a certain segment of the market or that was doing it really, really well. I think that, you know, when there's not as, so I think competition is good, but when there's not enough of it within a particular lane, if you will, that people grow complacent and that the standard of what is excellent or good enough is, is not high enough. So if you come in and do something really, really well, one, other companies in that space are going to get really upset at you, right? They're not going to like what you're, what you're doing to their business and their livelihood if, they, if they've coasted for 20 years, changing nothing. But it's really good for consumers and it's good for clients. I, I couldn't agree more. So how did you get started in your entrepreneurial journey? What was kind of the, the, the early uh, mogul moguling? It's, it's always like a childhood story, right? So like if you go back to the childhood, so my, my family and I, we immigrated from Eastern Europe when I was four years old. So it was like my parents my grandparents, my brother and I, and they came here with basically $500 to their name. They didn't speak the language. And you know, it's, of course, America is the land of opportunity. And you have almost like that common immigrant story, but it, you know, my, my parents, my dad was an engineer. My mom was a nurse. When they came here, they had to start over. So my dad is a, a mechanic. My mom's a, a hairdresser. And you know, when we grew up poor, everything from like low-income housing and, and so on. But I, I will say the advantage that I had was that my parents were very supportive. They invested a lot in our education. They valued education, all those things. And I guess being entrepreneurial at an early age, I remember I was, I think I was 13 years old. And I, this is, you know, it's almost, I, I used to joke that I think I was born like five years too late, you know, or like, you know, or, or 10 years too late because this <laughs> is when the dot-com boom has taken off and I'm creating websites. So literally at 13 years old, my mom is letting the, you know, my, my clients, you know, in quotes, in the front door of our home and you know and I'm designing websites for them for like tutoring companies and so on and that's that wasn't like a traditional thing for a 13 year old to do and if you right. dial it back even prior to that I'm getting in trouble in, in class because you know it's, it's the trading of like baseball cards and pogs if anyone remembers those things yep. so I would trade those the you know the school the elementary school at the time viewed that as gambling so my parents you know my immigrant parents are called in and you know they're like why, you know, anytime you're brought in, it's almost like, what have you done? Like, this is an embarrassment. Like, you know, just keep <laughs> it together, right? Just why, why are we being called in for this? So, I got it. Now I have to ask, because I used to actually sell pogs. Uh, we ran television commercials and the whole deal during the, the big pog craze. Do you know what pog stands for and what, it, what the origin of those things was? No, I would love to know. It makes absolutely no sense, but pog stands for pineapple, orange, guava, because these little, these, those little pogs were under the caps that were on pineapple, originally pineapple, orange, guava drinks, and people just started collecting them and it took off. And it was really funny. So I just happened to know that random bit of trivia because we sold so many of those things during that time. That's so funny. <laughs> okay, so you were a pog trading website building rebel. And then what did you do? 
Well, so you know, the options that I had, and you, you come from an immigrant family, it's you basically have doctor, lawyer, you know, you scroll down, it's like ISIS and then entrepreneur, right? So like <laughs> those are your those are your choices. And so I, when I went to school, I was a biology major. I was pre-med. I took the MCAT. I got into med school and it, you know, I, I spent about, I think it was like a hundred hours shadowing surgeons and physicians and so on. And being entrepreneurial, I did not like what I was seeing. Like I, I did, now, did you, you know, see opportunities then as well? Cause obviously you had already been an entrepreneur for some time. I, so I, this is a, something I'm looking backwards. I guess it's all necessary if, if you will, but it's mm-hmm. almost like I put that entrepreneurship hat on pause for a minute to go down this traditional route that a lot of people around me were like, this is the way to go, right? Like med- medical school, become a doctor. This is the safe path. Like, and I understand now, you know, having a child of my own, like I, I get that. But I, so I basically, even after I got in, the first thing I did is I put in for a deferral because I was like, look, I'm not sure this is the route I want to go. <laughs> right. Lucky for me, this is 2008, the recession hits. And here I am, honors graduate that got accepted to med school. I'm washing dishes at a dive bar. Okay. This is the only place that would hire me because, you know, they didn't actually care about, you know, where you went to school. Jobs were not as plentiful. And, you know, and I'm lost, like meaning that, you know, I, I, I know that I don't want to go to medical school, but at the same time, I don't know what else I want to do. So fortunately I went from washing dishes at this dive bar to washing lab equipment at the CDC. Right. And I had a kind of unique opportunity there from there over the, like the, you know, over a year, I was able to, there was another opportunity, ironically, designing websites at the CDC for the CDC.gov and doing like Section 508 compliance and like the accessibility, you know, because it was a government mandate that all documents, you know, had to be made accessible for like screen readers and the blind. Yep. And yep. when I was there, I remember, so like, of course, that's a nine to five. I remember showing up at 7 a.m. because I didn't want to show up, you know, like, sit in traffic. I remember leaving at 7 p.m. because I also didn't want to sit in traffic. And what I would do <laughs> is I would, do, I would go through a new, like, development book every single week. So like like web development, I, I learned PHP, JavaScript. I even started learning, like I, I studied for a CSCS, like in sports medicine. Yeah. Those degrees. Cause I was like, look, what do I do? Do I go get an MBA? Do I do what, <laughs> what have you? And then and I'll, I'll shorten the story cause I'll condense the rest of it. But I bought a camera. I remember I, like a, a photography camera and I figured this would be a nice lifetime skill to learn. Cause I was like, who, you know, photography is great. Like, you know, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful to have that type of skill set to just take great pictures? And, yeah. you know, with me, hobbies be almost become obsessions. So if I'm going to do it, it's like it can't just be something I do casually. I've got to make you know, almost like a, a career or a business out of it. And I, I had an opportunity to take pictures for a friend of mine that I went to high school with. He was working as a bartender at a, at a nightclub. I started taking pictures. So I'd work at the CDC basically from, you know, that seven to seven. And then from, you know, that 8 p.m. to 3 a.m. Every, every night, pretty much during the week, weekends included, I'd be taking pictures at this nightclub. And then I saw something and I'm like, well, I can't be in two venues at once. And I can't, you know, so I, you know, I brought on another photographer and another photographer. And over the next four years, we had 90% of the market share in Atlanta of all the bars and restaurants and event venues in Live Nation. And then we, you know, we integrated video and so on. But I very quickly realized that I was sitting at the wrong table. So like right. meaning that 90% of the people in my industry wouldn't wake up till noon. About 50% of the venues, our clients would turn over every year. So they literally just go out of business. When it rained, like if it was, if the weather outside wasn't good on a Friday night, that was, you know, it was our fault, right? So <laughs> I just, I realized that here we are with 90% of the market share in our city. And like what we were doing so well when it came down to revenue and profitability, it was literally, I would sit in a three hour meeting with a venue owner over $50. And, and I was like, you know what? 
we could be doing something else. We're very, we're, we could sit at another table and let's say in a more competitive strategic, you know, business. So at the time I looked at the one corporate client we worked with, which was the W hotels. And I was like, well, let's start a video company around right. just the corporate, corporate clients, corporate video clients, and just work with them. And, you know, that's how Chris Burley was born. It, it basically, every, as I think back into this, everything was about like doing something, getting it off the ground quickly. Cause I remember TechCrunch the first time ever they came to Atlanta, somebody reached out to me and they're like, would you be willing to just film this event for TechCrunch for free, but they'll give you a booth. And Chris did not exist. We didn't have a logo. We didn't have a website, nothing. I didn't have any employees. And I was like, sure. I got this call on a Thursday, the, uh, the TechCrunch event, I think it was on a Tuesday. From Thursday to Tuesday, we had a logo, a website. I didn't have a team, and I just called up you know, some of my friends yeah. to, uh, to work this booth. And you know, we produced this video for TechCrunch that this is where we got, I think, a, a bit lucky. We branded it all about TechCrunch. We used their brand guidelines. We made it all about them. And they featured us on the front page of TechCrunch well, with that video, which is, you know, which is great, right, when the company's wow. starting. Because we weren't marketing, you know, we weren't promoting us. We were just saying, let's just do something really great for them. And, you know, we worked with different businesses and brands, everything from Coca-Cola and Verizon and so on, like the kind of the, that, that corporate route. But we didn't really make, in my view, much progress, at least exponential progress, until we, we started to really niche down. And, yeah. you know, early on, I was told, don't start a video company. You won't be able to compete with the agencies or with TV. There's no future in online video. This is 2012. But, you know, even then when we were working with these big brands and so on, I saw that, well, there's a lot of decision makers, things move very slowly and it's the small businesses that I felt we could make the greatest impact for. So yeah, yeah. randomly a law firm, she, uh, she reaches out to us, has no online presence. We create a video for her and then a series of videos, her business explodes. We did it for another firm and then another firm. And I look at the legal industry, which I'm not a lawyer. I knew nothing about and I saw right off the bat that not a whole, like literally not a whole lot of change in the past 20 years as far as legal advertising is concerned. The mm. things that I saw were true was that there was an abundance of supply in terms of like law firms competing. It was super competitive. At the same time, they, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of trust and goodwill from consumers towards lawyers. Like they weren't well regarded like, like doctors. Mm. And, you know, it, being as competitive as it was this industry was largely commoditized. So there were very few firms at the top in any market that would get the bulk of the cases. And then if you were a solo or a small firm, even if you were the best lawyer, but you weren't the best marketer, you would be a tr at a tremendous disadvantage. It was not a level playing field. So I looked at you know, what we did and I said, well, we're pretty good at this decommoditization side of like actually humanizing businesses and brands and like articulate, you know, telling their stories and so on. So maybe there's something here. And as we started to niche down and dial in into legal, the business doubled every single year for seven years straight. That's awesome. That's really cool. What a great story. So it sounds like you started broad with the video, like lots of different, just kind of whatever comes, which is makes sense. Like when you're just getting into something, you have no idea. And then you, you really focus down into the legal area and then you broadened again with, but broadened within the niche of law to do other services because you saw that there was an opportunity and they all related directly to what you're doing. It's not like you said, I'm going to get into 3D modeling of accident renderings and things like that, right? Well, yes. And, and I would also say that, so what we do today, I wanted to do back in 2012, but I did not feel that we had done enough to establish enough credibility. And quite frankly, we hadn't. And, and also, so like, you know, to help other business owners and to help them kind of navigate the various business challenges to me is, you know, as someone who went through a tremendous amount of sacrifice and suffering, you know, that did not know the, the cause and effect behind decisions, didn't know why, like, 
some, a person would work out versus one where they would not work out, you know, what would get the phone ringing more versus less like that just did not understand that. And I think this is what creates a lot of stress amongst uh, business owners to mm-hmm. where they just don't know, like you know, can't differentiate a good decision from a bad decision because they don't see the matrix, right? They don't yeah. understand like the, like the operational aspect tying in to, you know, client experience and then also tying into, you know, the culture and the leadership aspect and getting the right people in the right seats and scorecards and all these different things. But yeah. when you learn those things, like not only did my life tr- you know, improve tremendously. So I started crisp, ironically, just as my family came over here with $500, I started crisp with $500 to my name. And I'm hearing for years, like, you know, can you, can you give this up and just go back to med school? It wasn't actually until recently <laughs> that my parents were like, okay, we're fine with this. You're um, legit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want, if you have immigrant parents and you wanted to accept you, just write a book, you know, and like <laughs> that, then they'll, you know, they're like, okay, this, you know, you wrote a book. So, you know, it, throughout that entire process, I, I will say that like, it's when you kind of see the matrix and, and we're all still learning, I'm still learning and, and so on, but it just becomes a lot more enjoyable when you understand the cause and effect behind various decisions. Right. And when yeah. you, when you don't, it is, I think one of the greatest, like almost like miseries that you can have because like the business is down and you don't know why. Yeah. That's a scary place to be. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really is. So if you were going to do this again today, knowing what you know now and not wanting to do legal because there's this behemoth called crisp, that's like totally owns that market. What would you do? In terms of industry or, or how would I approach? Let's right? say that, let's say you got 500 bucks now, but you've got all the knowledge that you have now. You don't have the contacts, but you've got the knowledge. What, what, would, what do you think you would do? Well, I mean, right off the bat, and I like, look back at this because there's like some lessons it took us way too long to learn. Right. But I would very much focus on the people first and getting the right people around me and then documenting everything that we were doing from the onset, right? So like, it's, it's not, let's, let's document the processes after, you know, we have, 50, 80 people in the organization. We're all, you know, working with a thousand clients, right? It's like, let's do that from the onset so you can build it to scale. But I think the biggest thing for me is just that my mindset towards like how I approach all this stuff altogether, I, where I have some regrets is, you know, looking back and just not being willing to place bigger bets sooner. So Mm -hmm. I I give the analogy of like sitting around on a blackjack table and you're gambling at $5 chips right? And at best, maybe you'll get up to 30 or $50, but you're never leaving that table with $1,000. And, and the longer that people postpone that, like they, the more like, you know, they kind of limit themselves from accomplishing those great leaps. So with $500 today, what's so interesting about this question is I don't look at it as how, what would I do with the 500? I would look at it with, you give me zero today. I, I think the, the thing that no one can ever take away from you, which is kind of the value of learning all these lessons is just the it's, it's almost like the, the courage that you gain and the confidence you gain through like results that you've driven before. So in knowing, okay, now there's a network of people that you can reach out to that you've developed relationships with that it's not even about, you know, the 500 it's like, you know, on any given day, if necessary, there's always some, there's someone that you could reach out to where if you needed capital, you could get some capital, right. Which was not the case in 2012, because I say that I bootstrapped the business, but it was not necessarily by choice. It was the fact that there was not a bank on this earth that was willing to give a loan to someone starting a service-based business in 2012. And, you know, we didn't really know, like, I guess not a whole lot of business experience period, right. They're they're willing to do it now, but that was a blessing then. So I guess the the main thing is just that knowing what I know today, I think that this journey that's taken eight years to where we are now, I, we could probably do now in probably three, maybe two. And the re and the primary reason is. Uh, The primary reason is just now uh, I guess having confidence in our ability to hi- like find and hire the right people, 
from a, you know, a process standpoint of, of being able to put those in place. Also an understanding of just, I would go into another niche. I would go into another niche market. I wouldn't try to be the, you know, the company for everyone. I would have skipped the whole like Coke, Verizon, you know, Red Bull, all that stuff and just <laughs> gone very narrow. And then I'd also look at, okay, the clients we're going to work with, what are their clients investing in them? Because mm-hmm. I think that's a, bit, a big pitfall where if let's say you go into an industry, I'll just give like dental as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, the average patient value of, of a dentist is say over, over the course of a year is like a thousand dollars. Right. So they're going to be limited in the amount that they can invest in marketing compared to, let's say, a law firm where they can have an average client value of, you know, six or seven figures. And then they collect a fee that's a third of that. So that then expands their ability to invest in their business, in their team and in their marketing. Super so smart. I always look at like, who are the clients of our clients to make sure that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And if, if our clients are also miserable, so I'm just continuing to use the dentist as an analogy. Like the dentist in most dental practices, like that person is also the, the person who's working with every single patient, right? It's like, it, it's almost as if their office manager, the person who does not own the practice is really the one running the practice. And yeah. they are so tied into the business that they are the primary producer of that business that if they yeah. get sick or you take them out of it, this is why many of them are just generally not happy, right? right. So I would be very, very careful about the industry that we select and the clients that we work with for that very reason right off the bat think that you'll expand outside of law? You know, I get asked this. So the, the, I believe, so I'm the type of person where I want to continue to grow and grow and grow and grow because to me, it's just an exciting journey to just, you know, the different levels of managing a large team and, you know, helping more clients and just being the, the capability that, that gains us. So like being able to host a conference and all these things. But my answer to that, which I get asked a lot, is that I think that that makes sense once there's a level of saturation already established where the growth rate essentially slows. Like if we were not growing 200% year over year, I would say absolutely it does make sense to expand elsewhere. But while we are, uh, as hard as it is to say no at times, it's just that uh, the power of focus is is so amazing because we've been offered opportunities in everything and automotive and orthodontics and and dentistry and all these things that we could do because there's always the, the random dentist or the optometrist or the plastic surgeon or whoever that reaches out and says, will you guys shoot a video for me? And the answer back in 2012, 13 was like, yes. I mean, we do yeah. a video for anybody. Does it pay? Does it pay? Yes, we will. <laughs> yeah. I love people talking about like their principles and like the, you know, the, the privilege and luxury that they, you know, say that they would have when you have no money coming in and you have like, you know, an office to pay or team members and you have payroll due you know, at that point, yes to everything. Uh, I remember, I mean, just give you an example. We had a client back in the early years where it was, it, it was the secretary of, a, of a, like a high-powered CEO. He could never make it to his son's soccer games. So they wanted us to come out and film his son playing soccer so his dad could watch him later. And I'm like, okay. But I didn't realize how strange that would be at the time because we'd sent one of our team members to film a young child, right? Yeah. Playing soccer, which was a little weird, right? Right. But but now as I look you know, back to that, you know, having a child of my own, I'm like, well, I, what a failure that would be to have, <laughs> you know, to have to hire somebody to film my kid so I yeah. can watch it later because I couldn't be there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really would. You mentioned um, confidence and courage. What do you think the difference is between those two? Yeah. Well, so courage in my view is one of those things where it's, it's just, you know, it's being terrified, but doing it anyway. So it's, it's, an example being, you know, when we launched the client referral program for the first time, I think it was in 2017, people were giving away like Amazon gift cards and, you know, Apple gift cards. And we said, Tesla, right? We're going to give away the $77,000 Tesla. 
that is a courage move because I'm clearing out my savings account. I have no idea what the outcome will be. I hope people <laughs> will. I hope it'll work, right. but I have absolutely no idea. And I'm just saying, all right, let's just do it. To me, the, the, you know, so courage is not like storming in in the face of battle. It's being terrified and doing it anyway. And yeah. courage, you could do at any business level, like at any resource level. It's just pulling the trigger and, you know, and writing the check or making the commitment or, or whatever it is. And I actually think, Ironically, courage is the biggest separator of people at different levels of revenue and, and, and different levels of just business achievement. You yeah. know, we have multiple coaching programs at different levels, and then there's the firms that are under a million, and then there's the firms that are seven and eight figures. And if you were to really say, what is the difference between these two? And it is one group is just has more courage, or they, you know, they've been willing to employ more courage and place those bigger bets. They're not always, you know, they're not necessarily smarter people. They're not harder working people. Like, you know, people are smart and hardworking, you know, especially those with law degrees. But the one who's willing to invest in hiring five team members at the exact same time versus the one that deliberates on that decision for a year straight, you know, who do you think makes more progress faster? The other thing on uh, on confidence. So I, I always look at the interplay between confidence and ego. So mm-hmm. ego to me is one of those things where it's like you pound your chest, but at night when you go to sleep every night, like, you know, you know, I, I, I was talking to my wife about this the other day. I was like, I, I just believe that everybody knows themselves. So no matter how great you tell yourself that you are, how successful you are, whatever it is, at night when you go to sleep, you know whether like you are a person of value who is doing, you know, who's actually making an impact, making a difference. You know, you sleep well at night or maybe you don't. But I think the only way to gain confidence is with results. It is mm-hmm. the only way. It's the, I think anything else is, uh, is ego. And some of the most successful people that I meet have some of the greatest amount of humility. In our coaching programs, as an example, this is because you learn so much from the other side. Yeah. Uh, the most successful people, the, the, the largest firms, the ones that are like literally the 40, 50, 60, 70 million dollar firms at Roland, I kid you not, they're the ones who sit there and take the most notes. They ask the most questions. You want to know the, the you know, in quotes, the least successful, the smaller firms in that room? They're the ones that sit back. They're the ones that don't take notes. They're the ones that have answers, you know, to all the questions. They've already read that book. They've already done that. And it's just interesting for me to see it from the other side. Yeah, it it is really over the last five or or so years. And even in traveling a lot, it's been, it's become clear that the things that last for centuries, the things that are legacies are built with shocking amounts of detail. We were in Russia at a church and it was a church where that was built to honor uh, one of the czar's fathers who was assassinated on the spot where it was built. It's I think it's the Church of the Holy Blood or something like that. And it it, it was because he was assassinated in like you know 1824 or something like that. The thing is 1824 meter, meters high, and it and like it's all of this symbolism that went into it. So is it? magical that they did that does that what makes it great that it was you know it was this number of meters high or whatever it was for the year that he died no it was that the thought that was put into it was so great that that meant that that thought went into every detail even the ones that didn't correspond to some you know something kind of gimmicky like that and you see that over and over exactly what you said the people that are the most successful are the most dedicated and they're thinking through every single little aspect of it and that's what makes all the difference like you do at your events and when you're creating the things that, you know, that serve your people. It's, it's, it's really funny. I'm wondering though, if you were whispering in the ear of you back in that was what, 11 years ago or 12 years ago, 2008, if you were whispering in your ear when you said at the time that you didn't have the confidence at that time, or you didn't think that you had the credibility to go out 
would you whisper something different about confidence or courage to that, that version of yourself? You know, so, so I always wonder, it's like, do we become the people we are without going on the necessary path that right, we right. have to go through? Right. Cause like, Maybe if I did that, I'd be, you know, I'd be in a different place today. It's like, if, if you don't skip those Thanksgiving dinners and those Christmas, you know, and you're sitting in the office on those nights and, you know, when everybody around you is basically leaving you and is saying that like, this is a waste of time, you should give it up. Like, do you, do you harden yourself in a way that's necessary? I think that withstand, you know, greater adversities down the line. So I don't know, but I would say if I'm talking to my younger self, you know, let's say pre, you know, pre crisp and, and before starting the business, the, the best thing, and I've been giving this a lot of thought recently it just, you know, we launched the podcast and, you know, it, I started speaking to so many of like just successful industry thought leaders and like legal and outside of legal. And the prevailing trait that I saw in all of them was that they knew themselves, like knowing thyself. So like meaning that if you know who you are, it's like all you do is focus on aligning yourself in a role that's in alignment with your strengths. And that's it. And I, and I would have told my younger self that rather than trying to be, you know, all these other things are being good at the, the, you know, strengthening weaknesses, for example, that just lean in on your strength and then surround yourself with people who are good at all these other things. And it's just, be, you know, when I say know thyself, it's not everyone, you know, if you don't want to build a ginormous company and, you know, and it, it just all these things, you don't have to. I've actually, it, it's, there's no nobility in doing something that is not in alignment with who you are and what you want to do. You can, you can set yourself up for, you know, just a life of misery almost if yeah. you're not doing that. But I will say that when, when you do know yourself, so like, for example, if you put me at Home Depot, I'm like terrible at like building things and like, you know, maps and, and 3D and everything. I am a below average employee at Home Depot like that. Same Michael, even today, you put me here at Crisp and you're running an eight figure business. And, and that to me is, is, is so amazing in the sense of like, if, if people could just focus on putting themselves in the right role. So maybe it's entrepreneur, maybe it's not. Maybe you, you're the CFO or maybe it's the COO or, or whatever it is. And you could just live a much happier, fulfilling life. So, I mean, it's just being very clear on knowing yourself. I think you go through this process of whether it's you give yourself multiple assessments. Like we've done things like print and Colby and wonder, like, I'm like, I love these things. The more that yeah. I can learn about myself and how I operate, the, the, the more introspective that I can be. And then reflecting back on past experiences and seeing, okay, this worked really well, or this, you know, yeah, I was in my unique ability or I was not in my unique ability and just leaning into that completely. Yeah, that's really, really cool. What are some of your, um, so you, you read quite a bit. What, what are some of your favorite books that gave you big breakthroughs in thinking or contributed to big breakthroughs in thinking that maybe people haven't heard of? Ah, and okay, I know that's so, a tough question. So if you need to think about it for a minute, that's okay. And if you can't think about it, it's totally cool because that is a very tough question. Yeah. Well, you know, one that's uh, that keeps coming to mind recently because I, I think I've given this recommendation like two dozen times in the last like three months is Give and Take by Adam Grant. Mm -hmm. And is this whole concept about like why helping others drives our success. And I remember in my early days, you know, when, you know, when you're broke and you're poor and, you're, and someone's talking about, well, just help others win and, you know, and all these things and just give. Easier I, to say when you don't need to eat. I was like, this sounds like <laughs> something rich people say, right? right. You know, uh, what I did not realize at that time, it took me many years to learn was that actually it's how rich people get rich, right? Yeah. When you can focus. So, so if you're focusing on how do I make money, I've generally found that that's like the, the, the least likely way to make money. It is. Uh, if you're focusing on how can I help other people succeed and how do I help somebody else make money, you know, or whatever their, you know, the impact is that you're making and you do that enough times, not only do you create stability and security for yourself from the, from the standpoint of, you know, I told our team, like, even as COVID first hit, I was like, look, 
if we are helping our clients grow and succeed, like if you're helping them make money, you know, you don't have to worry about job security. You don't have to worry about your place in the market. Like there's always a place for someone who's helping somebody else succeed. So it's always from that standpoint of, and that's where every, you know, every value extension of everything that we do comes from is of how do we help them succeed at a greater level? How do we help make an impact at a greater level? And I didn't realize how important it would be to really understand that and internalize that. I think sometimes when you tell someone something, it's not the same as showing it and experiencing it. So it's the same thing as like, you know, people of course believe that I'll just give an example like that, you know, there's exchanges of currency of, you know, of a hundred million plus, but if somebody showed you a, a check for a hundred million dollars, that's different, right? It's like, you know, it exists, but if you see one right in front of your eyes, it's different. And this actually shaped my childhood early on. So somehow in the first grade, I still don't know how my parents did this. This is like a testament to how they just made things happen. I was able to go to a, a private school. Uh, it was like, there's this Jewish private school and we had a total of, I think, 20 people in our entire like school. And this is a school that now it's like tens of thousands of dollars each, you know, each year to even attend. But I was the sponsored child, right? So I was the one that they're like, <laughs> and they, like the teachers and the students made, made that very clear to me, you know, and then you're in first and second grade. That's like, you know, they made it very clear. They all lived in mansions. And I was the one that was being, you know, was driving an hour, my parents would, you know, drive an hour and a half to school. But as tough as that was, and they, you know, they make fun of my parents and their accents and everything. And like, you know, it's tough as a young kid. The the best thing that ever happened with that is when I would go to my friend's house, when when my parents would drop me off and I would see someone living in this mansion with a fountain and a gate and all these things. And as a young kid, you're like, okay, this is possible, right? Like, I didn't even know this existed, but now I see it. And Mm -hmm. that to me was very inspiring. And I figured, okay, well, they did it you know, there's a way, right? So that was a very powerful experience for me to have at an early age. That's really, really cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out and uh, visit with us. If people want to connect with you or Chris for uh, any of the cool stuff that you're doing, what are the best ways for them to do that? Yeah. So you can go to the website, crispvideo.com. I also started this thing where, you know, we give the phone number out, like the, the team made me this shirt. So I would never forget, right. What my number was. So <laughs> it, it, it texts me and I actually respond. It's a, it's like a community number, but for the people that are listening, but not watching, let's uh, let's read that shirt to them. 404-531-7691. You can, you can shoot me a text and I'll respond. And you know, if it's anything relating to anything we've discussed, I'm, I'm more than happy to chat. Um, it's in a way I will say that I've gotten pretty, uh, I, I, I joke with the team that I'm like, I'm kind of useless around here, which is like my, my proudest you know, accomplishment ever. Absolutely. It, it took so many years, meaning that I, I joke that I pretty much don't do anything every day. So I, I have meetings with people about things they're going to do. Right. right? But that's like my whole day. Like I'm literally, yep. or I'll do like a podcast that we're like we're doing now. And that's just, it's, it's kind of funny to me. Like that to me doesn't feel like work when I'm meeting with somebody about something they're going to do. I know. <laughs> it's kind of nice. Awesome. And what about social or podcasts or anything like that? I think you've got some more stuff like that. You want to share that? Yeah. So there's a book and a podcast uh, by the same name. It's called The Game Changing Attorney. The book is on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And then the podcast is on iTunes and Spotify. So the podcast, which I'm super excited about. Am I allowed to promote a podcast on a podcast? Of course. Yeah. I appreciate that. But this is basically me interviewing market leaders. And even though it's called Game Changing Attorney, we feature guests like Chris Voss and Hal Elrod and Gino Wickman and, and so on. So it's been, you know, uh, you don't have to be a lawyer to listen to the podcast, just as you don't have to be a lawyer to listen to the book. But I would recommend that this is on the note of like really niching down is that when I wrote the book and I worked with Scribe and, and, and Tucker and his team, mm-hmm. the book, even though it's called The Game Changing Attorney, could be called The Game Changing 
marketer, the game-changing orthodontist, the game-changing anything, and you could do a find and replace. But I strongly, strongly, strongly recommend that if you are going to be focusing in on a particular industry, then rather than trying to be all things for all people and you know and all businesses across America, I believe you can make a lot more progress if you focus specifically on the industry or vertical that you're in. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for uh, for hanging out here today and always promote your podcast on a podcast, by the way, because the people who are listening or watching podcasts are the most likely to want to consume that kind of material. And so we want them to connect with you because we wouldn't have you here if we didn't want them to connect with you, right? Well, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a huge honor. I know some of the guests that have been on this thing. So I'm just, I'm humbled to even be invited to speak on this thing. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again. And I really appreciate it. And everybody definitely check out all of Mike's great stuff. You've been listening to Business Lunch with Roland Frazier. If you're enjoying the show, let us know by subscribing and leaving a review. And for more information, go to businesslunchpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. What if three days could change the course of your business in 2023? Get Scalable Live is where you'll gain great clarity on the next steps that will help you create the business, life, and wealth you deserve. Connect with business owners and entrepreneurs just like you. Hungry for advice, proven strategies, and necessary connections to grow a business. Literally, million-dollar conversations are happening in the hallways, in the bathrooms, across tables. Get Scalable Live at Fairmont Austin, November 2nd through 4th. Tickets are on sale now at GetScalableLive.com.